Hello, this is Rabbi Daniel Karopkin. Welcome to this podcast for learning the classic philosophical work by Maimonides, or Rambam, called More Nevuchim, or Guide for the Perplexed. This text has been studied for centuries by great scholars, Jewish and non-Jewish alike. It seeks to reconcile Aristotelian and Neoplatonic philosophy with the Torah of our people, and is considered the perfect entree for reconciling one's spiritual and rational personas. Join me for half-hour installments as we explore the text together. Hi, everybody. It's Danielle Karapkin speaking to you from Thornhill, Ontario in Canada for webyeshiva.org. Uh, we are studying Morena Vuchim, and today we are studying section two, chapter 18. Let us get our bearings as to where we were. We had just started chapter 18 uh, last time uh, in the course of uh, looking at the very end of chapter 17, where the Rambam told us that in chapter 14, he had presented three arguments from the students of Aristotle, which had uh, tried to argue on the basis of God's essence or God's nature, that if God is truly God or the deity as the way uh, Aristotle had described him, then it would perforce be necessary that the universe has existed eternally, that all of existence has eternally existed. So, uh, um, the Rambam sets out um, primarily in chapter 18 to disprove those three arguments. At the end of chapter 18, the Rambam is also going to tie up some loose ends that he had presented at the end of chapter 14 uh, with an additional argument as to why the universe, uh, it was believed, must be eternal. And the Rambam will present that to us as well. Um, I'm going to uh, be bringing up a, a handout for this chapter. Um, uh, in order for us to be able to finish the chapter all today, I'd like to just go over it with you in uh, um, in shorthand form, in, a, in an outline form, and we will be quoting some lines from the Moranavuchim itself. Um, if, you'd, if you're listening to this on a podcast and you don't have the video of, uh, of my uh, presentation, you can easily download this handout if you go to the Facebook group, Shi'ur in Morenevuchim, and look for section two, chapter 18's handout. You can also find it in the course description for webyeshiva.org. So the, we started mentioning these three arguments from Aristotle's students um, based on God's nature or God's essence. Uh, we talked about it last week. There's one prefatory note that I would like to sort of use as an introduction to this chapter. And that is, as we have it in my handout, the general refutations of all three arguments that the Rambam is going to set forth in this chapter are predicated on the assertion that we use equivocal terminology to describe both human actions and divine actions. That term equivocal is something that the Rambam uses throughout the first section in talking about how God is described in Tanakh. And here the Rambam is basically saying that the reason why there's so much confusion about our understanding of God and his nature and what must necessarily or not necessarily proceed from his nature is because we use terms to describe human behavior 
and we use those very same terms to describe divine behavior. And even though they're loosely re related, but they're totally different. You're comparing apples and oranges. So what might be an appropriate inference or extrapolation based on what you see human beings doing, um, can, you cannot use the same kind of inference and apply that to God, even though we're talking about the same kind of action or behavior. The three equivocal terms are action, will, and I'm sorry for the, for the typo, action, will, and wisdom. And this is the reason why ultimately each proof fails. Each proof fails because ultimately, even though we talk about action, that human beings act on cer in certain ways, human beings possess will and human beings possess wisdom. And based upon human action, human will and human wisdom, we would make inferences about the work product of human beings. We cannot say that similarly, because God possesses action, will and wisdom, that we can make certain assumptions or inferences about God's work product. And so here's the first argument. The first argument that Aristotle's students had made based on God's nature is that God cannot exist in potentia. If God did create the world from nothing, as the argument goes, then before creation, God was an agent of creation in potentiality and not in actuality. If you recall, Aristotle was very big on this idea of something existing in potentia versus in actu, or in potentiality versus actuality. And in this situation, like we discussed last week, um, a chair exists in potentiality even before it's been fashioned by the carpenter and it's simply a block of wood. And once the carpenter uh, forms it into a chair, it exists in actuality as a chair. Now, is was God a creator? Was God an actor upon, an influencer of existence? Yes, but if you're going to posit that God created the universe, then God existed as a potential creator before the universe was created. Thus, at the time of creation, God changed from potential agent to actual agent. It is impossible to apply the terms potentiality or change to God. And it's on that basis, the argument goes that therefore the universe must have existed eternally. Otherwise we would have a challenge to God's nature. nature. And the refutation to this is the Rambam writes on page 299 in the Pines edition, chapter 18, potentiality only exists in material things when they have not yet been brought to fruition. But immaterial things, such as God, are perpetually active and created even before creating anything. The proof of this can be found now. So <clears throat> again, terminology that you're using is action. You say that if God has not yet created, God is only potentially creating. That's only true. This whole terminology, this whole lexicon that you're using of potentiality versus actuality, only exists in material things, things that are made up of matter. But immaterial things, things like God himself, things like God's angels that are not made of material are active, exist in actuality even before they do anything, even before they act upon anything. The proof that the Rambam brings for this idea can be found in the active intellect. Now, just as a reminder, 
for those who have not yet um, consistently been following each chapter. The active intellect is the name that was given by Alexander of Aphrodisius in the third century, who was a student of Aristotle, who basically refined this idea that Aristotle had discussed that um, through a series of emanations of God down to the lowest of the spheres just above our planet, there must exist an intellect, um, sort of like an angelic being that influences human thought. And the way that the theory goes, as is refined by some of the Islamic philosophers that preceded the Rambam, is that human beings possess human intellect. We work on our human intellect, we work on refining our human intellect, and the, the higher that we are able to refine, the, the, the more excellent we are able to make our own minds, the more closely that we are able to connect our own individual minds to this, uh, to this being of pure intellect, which when we reach a certain threshold, we connect, we can join with the active intellect, and that's how we get our eureka moments, that there are ideas that are implanted into our minds from time to time because we have exerted ourselves intellectually to reach to a height where we connect with this being called the active intellect. So that's the way that um, uh, the Rambam had described the active intellect before based upon philosophical writings that he had found within Aristotelian scholars that preceded him. And one thing that we need to understand, says the Rambam, and this is stated, he says, explicitly by one of his great teachers, Abu Nasr al-Farabi, that it is clear that the active intellect does not always act. Rather, it acts at a certain time and does not act at another time. And what he means by that is that it all depends upon human initiative to determine whether the active intellect will stimulate the human mind. There, we, I may be living in a community of human beings and only a small percentage of those human beings are conjoining at any given time with the active intellect. At any given time, the active intellect will be uh, uh, Im imbuing people with ideas. And at other times, the active intellect may be dormant because no one has sort of made that effort to draw intellectual influence from the active intellect. The active intellect is an immaterial being. It is an angelic being created by God. And yet it is only on, so to speak, it is only active at certain times. And therefore the Rambam says, you can see as just as an example from an immaterial being that always exists in actu is never in any state of potentiality, and yet is sometimes acting and is sometimes not acting. Similarly, it is possible for God to have been passive or dormant at a certain time before creation, and then became active at the time of creation, but God was always active. And therefore he writes that action, the idea in Hebrew of po'el, which is a very similar word in Arabic, is an equivocal term, which means two totally different things dependent upon whether we are dealing with a material actor or an immaterial actor. And therefore, we, we make the mistake of trying to apply certain principles to God that we see applying to human beings and other material beings, and that is our mistake. 
And then the Rambam writes, he says, I will grant you the analogy is not perfect between God and the active intellect, because the active intellect's failure to act is not due to the active intellect itself, but rather the material things, and in this case, human intellects, that it seeks to influence. And what the Rambam means by this is that the reason why the active intellect is sometimes active and sometimes dormant is not because of any change within, the, within this angelic being itself, but rather it's because the active intellect has been described as sort of like a radio tower that is constantly emitting waves of intellect. And it's up to human beings to attach themselves and to turn on their radios, as, a, as it were, to turn on their minds and to really exert themselves intellectually in order to connect to the wavelength of the active intellect. The active intellect, however, is constantly um, emitting waves. So there's nothing that changes about the active intellect. How can you use that, therefore, as an analogy for God, who at one time was not creating and at another time was creating? But he says, I'm not making a perfect analogy. What my point being, however, is that it suffices, this suffices to demonstrate that immaterial things are not called existing in potentia when they are not acting. The tzad hashava, the, the commonality as it were, is that the active intellect, despite the fact that it is unchanging and constantly emitting, it is not acting upon anything if there are no human beings which seek out the emissions of the active intellect. Nor does any change occur to an immaterial thing when it switches from dormancy to activity. Now, I want to point out that although the Rambam notes that the analogy here is not perfect, we will see a similar discussion about the receptivity of divine influence dependent upon the recipient when discussing divine providence in later chapters, especially in section three. So the Rambam is not suggesting that God works in the exact same way as the active intellect of constantly emitting, and that only at some point did, did nature become worthy of coming into existence. That's not what the Rambam is suggesting that as far as how the history of creation came to be. His whole point is that immaterial things, even when they're not acting, are active. And that's his point. But this idea that the active intellect is like a constantly transmitting radio tower, and it is up to us to turn on our radios and to turn to the right station is an idea that the Rambam will come back to in discussing God as well when we talk about hashkacha pratit, or what we call divine providence. What do we mean by that? In section three, we will the Rambam will uh, use this idea and apply it to God vis-a-vis -vis how much divine providence a human being receives from God, depending upon the worthiness of the individual, the more righteous and um, intellectually perfect the individual, the more worthy that individual is of receiving divine providence. So that in that sense, God, God too is described as a constant emitter, unchanging in divine providence, but that it is the human who varies, the variable is with the human being, that depending upon the worthiness of the human being, the human being will receive either less divine providence or more divine providence. The point, however, for our chapter is, we think of things existing potentially when they're dormant, that is not true about God or any other material thing. So that's the refutation of the first argument.
The second argument is God cannot possess impediments or influences that cause him to change. And this is an argument that the Rambam felt was a very strong argument. As he writes, it is difficult to resolve this doubt and the solution is subtle. But what's, what's the argument? The only reason why an agent will act at one moment and not at another is either because of an impediment that prevented it from acting earlier. So the question is, why didn't it do X until now? Because it was impeded from doing X until now. Or B, an influence that prompted it to act now, meaning to answer the question, why did it act and do X now instead of waiting later? Is that something influenced it or stimulated it or acted as a catalyst to make that thing do X now instead of later? Because God is not influenced either by impediments or influences, it is not possible that there could have been a creation at a given time. So what's the refutation of this? The Rambam writes, any being of will acts at a certain time either because of an impediment or an influence. By analogy, a human being wishes to build a house. Why didn't he build the house before today? His impediment was that up until now, he did not have building materials or tools or because he was able to subsist without a house because he simply didn't need a house. So there are things that prevented a person from building the house until now, either because A, he didn't need a house or even when he needed a house, he simply lacked the resources, either financially or the wherewithal to put a house together. What causes a human being to build a house now and not later? Because colder heat, for example, have come, have come upon him, and therefore he cannot endure without a house. So therefore, you see that when we speak in human terms, we recognize that a person will have a will to do something based upon some external influence or impediment. Okay, so either they will be constrained from willing to do something up until now because of a prior impediment, or they will be influenced to will something into existence um, based on something that pushes them in that direction. But this is only stated, says the Rambam, about actions that are not a direct outgrowth of the will, such as, I will build the house because I am cold, not because I will the house to exist. In other words, what if I were to say, my, the fact that I'm cold is an external factor that causes me to will the house to exist. But what if I will the house to exist because I will the house to exist, not because of any external um, factor, such as I'm cold, but rather because it is my will. I will it because it is my will. When the sole motivation of action is the will itself, that will is not moved by impediments or influences, nor is it compelled to act at a given time or place. So it's a little bit difficult for us to get our heads around it, but the point that the Rambam is making is that God, God's will is not moved by external factors. It's not that God was bothered by something and therefore he created, or that he was stimulated by something and therefore he created. God's will was motivated by God's will. Does not, so, and, and therefore he asks the question, but does not a will that becomes manifest at a certain time, is that not an indication of change? No, not in immaterial things. Just as in immaterial things acting at one time and not in another is not an indication of change.
This is a confusion that is born from the equivocal meaning of will, which means one thing for material things and another for immaterial things. So once again, we are seeing that the, uh, the Rambam point out to us that this second argument is also born from confusion using an equivocal term. Just like the previous argument using the term action, pu'ula, was based upon our uh, observation of human action and our mistaken application to divine action, so too our mistaken understanding of will based on human will was misapplied to divine will, and that's why we assumed that the universe must be eternal when it was actually created and willed into creation by God. And the third and final argument based on God's nature is God is perfect and eternally wise. God is perfect and his acts are perfect. And as Aristotle himself was quoted as saying, nature is wise and does nothing for naught. The world which emanates from a perfect, all-wise and eternal God must also be perfect, all-wise and eternal. And here too, the Rambam provides a refutation. And his quote is, and we're just reading it directly from the text of the Rambam. And you can read this, it's on, um, it's on page, um, see is on the bottom of page 301 in the Pines edition. He says, this is a very feeble way of going to an obligatory conclusion. For in the same way as we do not know what his wisdom is in making it necessary that the sphere should be nine, neither more nor less, and that the number of the stars equal to what it is, neither more nor less, and that they should be neither bigger nor smaller than they are, we do not know what his wisdom in bringing into existence the universe at a recent period after it's not having existed. Just like we cannot explain God's wisdom, why did God create a, a heavens with nine celestial spheres, which was the conventional wisdom in the Rambam's time? Why not 10? Why not eight? Is, not, is God's perfect wisdom perfect? Of course it is. What, how do you associate perfection with specifically nine celestial spheres? How do you associate any of the makeup of the heavens or earth with perfection? And therefore, the Rambam's point is, is that you're creating an association between what you deem to be perfect wisdom to perfect creation. And if wisdom is perfect and eternal, so creation must be perfect and eternal. But look at all of the uh, apparent imperfections within creation. And so just because God's wisdom is perfect does not allow you to extrapolate what his creation should or should not look like. Ultimately, God's essence is inseparable from his wisdom and his will. Just as we cannot properly understand his will or his wisdom, we cannot understand his decision to create the world at one given time. And once again, uh, this is based upon our mistaken misapplication of the idea of wisdom. We tend to think that whatever is contained within a human being's intellect will be reflected in his work product, and that's not necessarily true about God. God has a certain intellectual perfection, but his work product, his universe, is not necessarily uh, reflective of everything that is contained within God's wisdom. And just like God is eternal, and his universe, however, is not right? So too, I mean, that's the whole idea as to why it's possible for creation to have come 
into being and that the universe is not eternal. There are two loose ends that I think we need to tie up from the end of chapter 14. If you go back to chapter 14, and I'll just refer you to the page number because I want you to observe what the Rambam has done, is that on page 288, the Rambam had uh, presented the three arguments from the students of Aristotle, making three arguments based on God's nature to prove or to argue for the eternality of the universe. And at the end of that, towards the bottom of page 288, the Rambam had said, all the arguments of the believers in the eternity of the world that you may encounter are ramifications of these methods and stem from one of them. And then the Rambam presented, for some strange reason, two additional arguments that are brought by either Aristotle or the students of Aristotle for an eternal universe. And it seemed when we first studied this chapter, it seemed like these were adjuncts to the main arguments. In other words, these are things that you can find either in Aristotle's writings or his students' writings that are incidental or, or that incidentally mention arguments that prove that the universe is eternal, but that was not their main thrust. And the first one uh, argument that was made was it is impossible for a pre-creation God to be idle. And the argument is like this, if our world was created, what was God doing proactively before our world came into existence? Even if God created multiple finite worlds before our own, even if God created billions upon billions upon trillions of finite universes before our own, but if we're talking about eternality, um, the duration of even a huge number of finite worlds still leaves an eternal God idle for a certain period. Thus, it is impossible to say that our creation is finite because this would force God to be idle. Not so much that God would be existing in potentiality, but that God would simply not be doing anything. What would God be doing? Twiddling his thumbs? That's the argument that is made over here. It's slightly different from the first argument based on God's nature. It's not, an, I, it's not an argument that based on God's essence, he cannot be a potential being, but rather what would God have been doing that would have been productive during the period of time between all of the finite creations that he created. There would have, must have necessarily been a gap in, in infinity if we are dealing with a series of finite universes. Now, mysteriously, the Rambam appears to ignore this argument in our chapter and does not address it in chapter 18. It's actually, the Rambam had presented nine arguments. And in chapter 17, he presented the first three. Um, uh, uh, sorry, uh, he, yeah, he presented, he presented the first four. Then he presented six, seven, uh, five, six, and seven in our chapter. And then eight and nine are the last two arguments that the Rambam presents uh, from chapter 14. This argument that it is impossible for a pre-creation God to be idle is not addressed by the Rambam in our chapter. Now, why is that? And it's, we, I don't really have a concrete answer, but I would suggest that perhaps it's because he has already satisfactorily refuted it by discussing the mystery of God's existence in the previous arguments. In other words, once we've established that anything that we can associate with human behavior 
cannot be related accurately to God, then this whole idea of just like a human being who is perfect would never be idle, we would not expect that of divine behavior, that's a misapplication of, of um, or a misextrapolation based upon our observation of human behavior. And once the Rambam has demonstrated in the last three arguments of our chapter that that's not how you're supposed to view God, this argument is deemed perhaps not necessary anymore to address now that I've, I've already pointed out that we really simply don't understand a basic terminology as it applies to God. So idleness would also fall into that category as well. But it is unusual perhaps that the Rambam sort of simply ignores this argument um, when addressing all of the other of the nine arguments uh, in the previous chapter and in our chapter. But then he gets to the final argument that he had presented in chapter 14, which is consensus of humankind. And that argument goes like this. Once mankind arrived at consensus that the heavens are eternal, they asserted that they are the dwelling place of the eternal God. Anything that mankind accepts unanimously must be a truism not invented by philosophers. And the argument basically goes like this. Look at his, the history of the world and its understanding of God going back to ancient man. Has not ancient man through, through the, to the modern age, it argues the Rambam, always assumed that God resides in the heavens. If God resides in the heavens, and that's been established by consensus throughout human history, then if God is infinite, must not his residence also be infinite? Because otherwise, how, where would God reside if the universe is not infinite, if the heavens are not infinite? Does this not um, um, imply or force us to conclude that just as God is eternal, his heavens, his residence must also be eternal? And the argument is based on consensus, on human consensus. So the refutation of this is that firstly, even scripture confirms that God resides in the heavens. And although the Rambam doesn't give us any psukim, we can certainly look at a series of psukim throughout Tanakh that sort of provides us with that image that God is Yoshev Bashamayim. So for example, in Tehillim uh, chapter two, it says that God is Yoshev Bashamayim Yishak, that God dwells in the heavens in laughter or in mirth. Or in Tehillim chapter 123, it says, that God resides in the heavens. So the Rambam says, I'm not refuting that idea. Yes, it's true. Going back historically, ancient man for, for, for generations, all the way going back and, and going all the way to our present time, has always assumed that God resides in the heavens. But this does not mean what the philosophers think it means, that the heavens are eternal. Rather, it simply implies that the heavens and its contents prove God's existence and that he is its mover and governor, as we will explain further in the next chapter. In other words, when we say that God resides in the heavens, it doesn't, obviously it doesn't mean spatially, and that's something that the Rambam had discussed back in section one, that uh, God does not have a confinement to a certain space, right? So it certainly doesn't mean that. And it also doesn't mean that the universe is eternal. It just means that when we look at the heavens, we can confirm God's existence and God's governance of and maintenance of all of creation. That's what we mean when we say that God resides. 
is the idea of God resides in the heaven or the proof of God resides in the heaven. That's what we mean. And it's a shorthand way of speaking. And that's something that the Rambam will address in chapter 19, when we, and which will start next week, God willing. In fact, and this is a direct quote from the text, there is no greater proof indicating God as creator than that deriving from the heaven. And so uh, that's all the, that that statement means. So even though there is consensus that God resides in the heaven, it means that God, that God's existence is demonstrated and that God's governance of all that is, is demonstrated by the motions of the heavens. And with that concluding argument, the Rambam has addressed all except for the one that we mentioned, all of the arguments for the eternality of the universe from chapter 14. And then the Rambam writes from here on, now that I've demonstrated that the so-called proofs of the eternality of the universe are not proofs at all, we will now proceed in our text by demonstrating how the belief in God as creator outweighs the argument for an eternal universe. And we will show how it is even more logical to believe in creation at some point in time than it is to believe that the universe has existed eternally. And that will be the ensuing chapters until we conclude this discussion over the next few chapters. Um, I hope this was a bit more technical than I had anticipated that it would be for today, but I hope you were able to get something out of our discussion. I wish you a good week, and we'll pick this up with chapter 19, Bezrat Hashem, next time. Take care.